Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Hi, this is Alan Schaefer. Welcome to our fifth week in the study of the Gospel of John. This week we're going to be looking at chapter 7 and most of chapter 8. We're going to start in chapter 7, verse 1, and actually work our way through chapter 8, verse 30. One of the unique things about the Gospel of John is Christ's use of the great I am's. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. And this week we're going to see two of these great I am passages. The first is at the Feast of Tabernacles where Christ talks about being the water of life. I am the water of life in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, we're going to be looking at Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And we're also going to be looking at a disputed passage in the Gospel of John in the first part of chapter 8, which is the woman taken in adultery. Let's get into our study today. All right, we're in uh, John chapter 7 tonight, 7 and 8, and I'm not sure we're going to get through all of this, but don't worry because we got a little bit of buffer built into the schedule with chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, so we'll get through it all. Let's open in prayer. Father, thanks so much for tonight. Thanks for your grace to us for this opportunity to be here to sharpen one another. Open our minds and open our hearts. Help us to see the wonder of your son. Help us to understand him a little better. And we thank you, Father, that you loved us so much that you sent him to be our savior, our substitute. And we thank you for the salvation you've granted us and the understanding that your Holy Spirit gives us in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. Well, after what things? Well, the events of John 6. And if you can think of John, you know, if you think of John 6, John 5 and 6, what's the main idea that's happening here? What's happening with Jesus now? How are people responding to him? Overwhelmingly Over Matt, no, I think it's overwhelmingly rejection. I mean, you've got you've got a, a, some people that buzz around just to follow, just to follow, but but as soon as they get close enough to really find out what it's all about, what happens? They're, they're leaving, right? They're leaving, and you see that at the end of John chapter six. Are you going to go away too? And Simon Peter says, "Where do we go? Where we where where are we going to go? We have no place to um to go." And what you see here, and, and, and you're going to start seeing this here again in John chapter 7 and um, 8, is Christ's call to discipleship and the requirements of discipleship. And uh, this is something, quite honestly, we don't really preach today. The average gospel message, what's it about? Come to Jesus and he will 
fix your problems, right? He'll uh, give you new life. He will grant you heaven. He'll give you peace, yada, 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 yada. But there's no, there's no discussion of the cost. I just listened to a, a sermon by Steve Lawson. If you can listen to him, um, do it. But it was on Luke 14, and I, I want to actually have us look at Luke 14 here for a few minutes. It was on Luke 14, and, and the basic idea is being a Christian costs you nothing, yet everything. Being a true disciple of Christ costs you nothing, but it costs you everything. And what do you mean by that? Well, can you pay for your salvation? No. But what does Christ demand of you? Everything. And if you're not willing to give up everything, what does Christ say? Go away. You can't follow me. I'm not interested in people who are not willing to give up everything. Luke 14, 25, um, there's a section on this. Now, great multitudes went with him. So Christ had a problem. He had all these people following him, but why were they following him? I, miracles. Um, it's a neat thing. I mean, this guy raises the dead. He feeds us, right? Um, it's pretty cool to follow him. Supposed to be the Pharisees. Oh, yeah. People aren't used to seeing. So, and, and Christ was, you got to understand, Christ was a gracious person. I mean, he was a likable person. <laughs> he had compassion and care. And he had great multitudes following him all over the place. But what did he do? He turned and said to them. Sort of like Christ going along and, and all these people are following him. And he finally just turns around. And he, t he, he tells them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Luke 14, 23, or 25. Why do you say that? <laughs> yep. Christ demands everything. Yeah. Uh, you don't come to Christ on your terms. You come to Christ on his terms. If you look at it, too, from the perspective of who he's talking to, they were very uh, family-oriented. And you figure the father was the patriarch of the family, and you know, his word was law. <coughs> so when you look at it from their perspective, he's really breaking down a major barrier in their upbringing. Well, it's good that you bring that out. When you look at this, you get the idea that Christ is telling them to hate their family. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that if you were to compare your devotion to me to your devotion for the family, it is as though you hate your family because you are so devoted to me. You're not telling them to hate the family. A husband is to love his wife, right? You're to love your kids. That's not what he's saying here, but it's a figure of speech. We understand that. And what Christ is saying, if you want to come and follow me, you have to give up your family. You can't, you can't hold back. You can't hold anything back. And you've got to give up your own life. And he emphasized that by saying, 
And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we don't think anything of that. But in those days, the cross was a symbol of terror. And he's saying, you want to follow me? You got to pick up your cross beam and follow me to execution. You got to give up your life. And if you don't do that, I don't want you as my disciple. Now, understand there are some who say, well, this is really not Christ giving them a call to salvation. It's Christ calling those who are already saved to a second level of spiritual commitment. In other words, there are those who say in the New Testament, Christ is, when Christ calls people to discipleship, he's not calling them to salvation. He's calling them to a higher level of devotion to him. You can't sustain that exegetically. Because later on, Christ says, what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And that's in a context of a call to discipleship. Don't tell me that it's not a call to salvation. It is. Christ is saying, if you're not willing to give up everything, I don't want you. If you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, go away. I'm not interested. And why is that? Well, which one of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, unless after he's laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. What's Christ telling people to do? Count the cost. Wait a minute, I thought salvation was a free gift. That's what I was told when I was growing up in as a youngster, salvation is a free gift. It doesn't cost you anything. Oh, yes, it does. What does it cost you? It costs you everything up to death. Right. <laughs> now, something that's so valuable, you can't pay for it, right? But there's a cost. Uh, Philippians 3, Paul says, you know, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day. I was a tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He said, "You want? I, there was nobody more Hebrew than me. Not only that, I was a Pharisee. I, I was the most zealous of the law. I, I knew the law. I, I devoted my life to defending the law. And then I saw Christ. And everything I was putting my trust in became manure. Scubalon is the word. Rubbish. Rubbish. Excrement. Waste. Everything I was depending on, everything I was banking on became rubbish. And I traded it all for the excellency of knowing Christ. I traded it all. Uh, the pearl of great price. Remember that parable of Christ? Here's a guy, merchant, seeking great pearls. And when he finds one of great value, what does he do? Sells everything he has to get that. There's another man who's plowing in a field and he finds this massive treasure in a field. And what does he do? Goes and buys the field. And how does he buy it? Sells everything he has. Folks, being a Christian costs you everything you have. You don't come to Christ and say, I'll take Christ and this. I'll add Christ to 
my life. No, Christ is a replacement. And Christ is saying, which of you, if you're going to build a tower, what do you do? You sit down, you calculate very carefully, do you have enough money to build it, to finish it? And not only that, but if you're a king and you've got 10,000 guys, can you beat the one coming at you with 20,000? If not, you better send and make some peace before he comes. What's he telling them to do? Count the cost. There's a cost to being a Christian. There's a price to be paid. Now, here's the wonderful thing, and this is why election is so good. Can you do anything to keep an elect person from it? No, you don't have to water it down. You don't have to soften the message. You don't have to make it acceptable. Here's a stop and think. Is it possible to make the gospel acceptable to the pagan? The Bible says it's foolishness for those that don't believe. You can't make it. The, the pagan looks at the gospel and says, that is stupid. That is stupid. You're telling me that the death of a Jew on a cross 2,000 years ago has something to do with my eternal destiny? That's dumb. The Greeks, they, they prided themselves on strength, on honor. You're telling me that God of the universe would allow himself to be hung naked on a cross and die? Come on. That's silly. And to the Jew, horror of horrors, their Messiah would never be on a cross. He's going to come and drive the Romans out. Christ is a scandal. And Christ is telling the people who are following him, you want to follow me, you give up everything or you don't you cannot be my disciple you can't do it i'm not interested one of my alan on that topic one of my favorite verses is john 6 68 where he says that uh, well where else shall we go you have the words of eternal life i mean from from my perspective from the human perspective isn't that just a common sense thing i mean I know the Holy Spirit causes us to believe, but where else do we go? And what else is there to believe? This seems so common sense. When in, 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 the, in the same context, was, I, I know now that it was on the Mount of Transfiguration yeah. that, that Peter similarly answered, "Well, you are the Christ. you are the Son of God." But if, if when we are we're looking at choices here, where else would we go? If, if, we, if Jesus has the words of eternal life. Well, the question that be answered is, does he truly have the words of eternal life? Now, how do you know that he has the words of eternal life? Well, from his perspective, it's because the Holy Spirit made me believe. Well, from the eternal perspective, it's because the Holy Spirit gave you the sight to see. You, you, bring, you, you bring an average unbeliever in here, they think we're nuts. They ridicule us. You think about the, who he's talking to in Scripture there, too. You know, he's talking to his disciples, whom all but one is going to die a martyr's death and suffer great pain and suffering to spread that gospel. So when he's talking to them, he's actually laying down the cost completely open and bare to them. They may not fully understand it at the time, 
But as they lived their life and those events took place, all of this message came back to their memory, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And they're sitting there thinking, yes, this is something that I have to do if I'm going to be a true disciple. You want to be a disciple of Christ? You want to be a follower of Christ? The price is everything you have. This is a message you don't ever hardly hear today. No. Because if you, if, you if you preach that, half the people in the church are probably leave. Well, I mean, that's what you looked at him and said, if you don't do it, you're not saved. Or you're not well, that's how that's how Christ weeded them out here. Yeah, that's exactly. Now, that doesn't mean that Christ makes you give it all up. But are you willing? Are you are you willing to submit to his absolute, total, sovereign authority in your life? If you are not, you can't be his disciple. That's a tough message. The rich young ruler came to Christ. What must I do to be saved? And Christ said, keep the law. He said, I've already done that. What else? Sell all you have. Go sell it all. Now, had he said, okay, fine, I'll be back in a day. Christ would have probably said, no, that's not, you don't need to do that. My test was, are you willing to do that? Here's what you need to do, Bill Gates. Are you willing? Well, it's easy to look at Bill Gates because he's got lots of money, but if you think about it, that's a message to each one of us. What does Gary Drucker yeah. have to surrender to be a true disciple? <clears throat> that's what I've got to answer in my own life. Mm -hmm. And the question is, are you willing? I hope so. And Christ's call to discipleship here is a call to total 100% commitment. I guess some of those questions we'll never know until we're faced with the no, we decision won't. to choose Christ or choose that other area of our life we choose not to give up. But, you know, th there's a lot of subtle ways that we have to make this choice. You know, I was a Christian at, at, a, at a somewhat young age. And because I was a believer, one of my choices or one of my decisions was I would never marry a non-Christian, period. It was a cost. There are certain activities I could not do. There are certain things I didn't do. There are certain jobs I cannot take because I'm a Christian. I'm going to be different. I'm going to think different. Now, I'd like to think I'd be willing to give it all up. And as best as I can say, I am, but... There's always that time when you have to look at the reality that maybe God is going to take something. Are you willing to give it up? And Christ's call to the crowds here, Christ had a lot of people following him. But they weren't connected to him. He committed himself, he didn't commit himself to them because he knew their hearts. They were not sold out. You want to be his disciple, it's going to cost you everything. And that's what we're going to see here in these Two chapters. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Why did the Jews seek to kill him? He was calling himself the son of God. Yeah, they hated him. He was doing all this work on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Making a mockery of their system. See, we didn't know you'd be here, so we didn't order enough pizza. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, 
Poor old Jamie. Poor old Jamie's over there saying nuts. He showed up. I was going to get his. <laughs> he's not. He's not going to be here tonight. So, no. But um, he didn't. He didn't walk in Judea because the heat was too hot down there, right? And they're trying to kill him. And he knew that the time was not yet ready or right for him to be down there. In fact, we had just come back from a Passover. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is about six to seven months later in September, October. And the next time he shows up at the Passover, he's going to be crucified. So the heat's getting really hot. Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Who's his brothers here? Yeah. Joseph, Simon, Judas, James. And what are they telling Christ to do? Go down there and show yourself. Now, did they believe in him? No, not yet. Now, his brother, are you talking about his disciples there? Or his, his brothers. Natural his natural brothers. Yeah. Go down there. Show yourself. I mean, you know, quit hiding. Yeah, well, it's not Akron. It's boom, it's boom, bongo, bongo. You know, get out of there and go go to the city. I mean, go down there and, and display yourself to your disciples. And disciples here are who? The 12 or the greater greater crowds? The larger crowds. Go down there, and if you are who you say you are, go down and show everybody that. And what is what's Christ's response? My time has not yet come. It's not time yet. But your time is always ready. What do you mean by your time is always ready? Well, you don't believe in me, so it doesn't matter whether you go down or not. I can't go down yet because the hour is not yet ready for me. You go on down. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Now, that's interesting. Now, he's going to pick that up later on in John 15, right? Why does the world hate Christ? Why did it hate Christ? He exposed their evil. Christ exposed their evil. They hated him. Because he was light and they lived in darkness. When he showed up, the light displays all of the bugs and all of the ick and all of the sin and all the corruption. And they hated him because of it. Now, why didn't they hate his brothers? They're not the light. They're not believers. They're not. They're not. They're, they're not. They're not following him. The world loves its own. I mean, later on, Christ says the world loves its own. Yeah. He says, "I. They hate me because I testify that its works are evil." You go up to the feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When it said these things to him, he remained in Galilee. They went up to the feast. He remained in Galilee. It was not yet ready for him to go down and cause a ruckus yet. All right. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. He snuck in. He didn't announce him. And he probably, you know, had the 
you know, cover pull over his head or a little bit or something. But he, he went because he wanted to see what was going on. He did it in secret. And the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? That's interesting. He went down in secret. He's sort of, you know, spying what's going on. And what are the Jews? Now I heard the Jews here. Who are they? Who are the Jews? Pharisees. Yeah, the bad guys, the Pharisees, you know, the, the lawyers. Yeah, where's he at? We know he's going to come down here and cause trouble. You know, they were probably on alert, you know. They probably had some meetings before the Passover now, or the tabernacles. Now you know that he's going to show up. What are we going to do when he shows up? They probably had some strategy going to deal with Christ when he actually showed up. And there was much complaining. The idea of complaining is not complaining is in griping, but discussion, arguments among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Some said, yeah, he's a good guy. Others said he's evil. But they were afraid to say anything about him because of fear of the Jews. I mean, if you were to go down there and say something was good about Christ, what would happen to you? You'd have been targeted. You'd have been targeted. You know, this is the, they, they were the people were scared. Individually, the people were saying some of them were saying he's a good man. Others were saying he's a deceiver. But and, and quite honestly, stop and think about it. Christ is a pretty divisive figure, isn't he? Yes, he is. And everybody, everybody has to make a decision about Christ. Is he God? Is he a nut job? Or is he a devil? I like the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, don't call him good. If any man claimed to do, claimed who he said he is, he's either the son of God or he's a son of the devil. Can't you can't harm? Well, Christ is a good man. Remain neutral. And he didn't intend to. You got to make a choice about Christ. Who is he? In fact, Christ asked his disciples on a Mount of Transfiguration, "Jesus, who is he? Who people say that I am?" Well, some of you say you're. Elijah and some say you're John the Baptist and others say this and that. Isaiah, one of the prophets. Well, what do you say? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And what did Christ tell Peter? Peter, you know, that was one of the most erudite, bright things you've said in a long time. What did he tell Peter? You know it all because the Spirit revealed it. The only reason you know that, Peter, the only reason you got the right answer is because the Holy Spirit showed you the answer. It wasn't your great wisdom and intellect. It wasn't that at all. And we got to keep, you know, if anything, we got to keep that in mind. Again, it's not your intellect. It's not your wisdom that helps you understand this book. It's the Holy Spirit that gives you understanding. And if he doesn't give you understanding, you're no better than anybody else out there. And we got to remember that because, you know, I, I, like what John said earlier on, I look at this and say, well, it makes sense. I mean, where else would you go? Where would you find eternal life? What idiot would not want to follow Christ? But my problem is I'm a believer. I see it. I understand it. 
They're blinded. They don't see it. And those of us who've been Christians a long time, we tend to forget what it was like when we were in darkness. We forget. Christ is uh, came down here to, in secret. And about the middle of the feast, by the way, the Feast of Tabernacles lasts about seven days. So about middle of the feast. Jesus went up to the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? He goes up to the temple to teach. Now, in those days, that's where the, that's where the teachers went. They were at the temple. And they go up there, and they start teaching and gather a crowd around them and start teaching the Old Testament or the law or whatever. And what was the response of the Jews? <coughs> He's not been to any of our seminaries. He doesn't have he doesn't have a diploma. How does he know these things? We we don't remember which one of us taught him. So pretty much when you see the phrase the Jews is speaking of the religious right. Speaking of the religious muckety-mucks. And they were astonished to him because Christ did not fit their mold. I mean, he, he wasn't schooled in one of their schools. He didn't train at the foot of some great rabbinical leader. I mean, that's how you got your, your um, credentials in those days. Is You would study. Paul, where did, who did he study under? Gamaliel was one of the great, greatest Pharisees of all time, as far as knowledge. And Paul said, I studied the defeat of Gamaliel. That's my credentials. And I had that <laughs> hanging on the wall of my office until Christ came along, and I took it down and threw it out. They're astonished at Christ because he knew the law better than they did. And he never went to one of their seminaries. And that probably frosted them a little bit because they weren't able to indoctrinate him. He didn't fit their mold. And how did Jesus answer him? How do you know this? Jesus said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. I, I didn't make this up on my own. This is not my doctrine. This is not my teaching. It's the teaching of those who sent, the one who sent me. Who sent him? The Father. Now, that should be a good answer that all of us have. When someone challenges us on what we believe, say, look, this, I, this isn't my doctrine. I didn't create this thing. I didn't come up with this. This is the word of God. This is the, the word of God is your problem, not me. The only problem you have with me is I actually believe it. <laughs> Christ said, my doctrine is not mine. It's the Father. The Father sent me to bring a message, and that is what I am bringing. I am bringing a message. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. This is interesting. How do you know if Christ is speaking from God or not? If you believe Christ is God, 
Father will give you the ability to see that it is truth and it isn't. It's sort of like a circular thing. And, and, and almost what Christ is saying, you know, you can't figure this out on your own. If you want to do God's will and you believe, then you'll know that what I'm telling you is true. Otherwise, you won't know what I'm telling you is true. And again, it goes back to us here. How do you know that the Bible is true? Because the Holy Spirit tells you it's true. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit. You know what's amazing is I sit there and listen to what you said. Because we live in a day, where, especially in America, where we've got every kind of flavor of religion you can think of when it comes to doctrine in the Bible. And you know, if you're really a concerned person trying to seek the truth, I mean, you've got to sift through an awful lot of stuff to finally get to that point where you can understand that what I'm believing today is straight out of God's word and it's close to the truth as we can get. Because you, you think about it, I mean, you've got, they're all, and they're all educated guys too, you know, PhDs, letters behind their name and everything. And they're on TV, they're not only on TV, but they're in every kind of, every church in, the, in Lorain County. You think about it. We're sitting here in Lorain County. How many denominations do we have? Too many. And yet, there's only one truth, and we know that. We're sitting here in this class trying to get that truth. There is only one truth. And it was, you know, it's, what's mind-boggling when you think about it is everybody gets stuck in their traditions so ironclad that they are unwilling to listen to, to even see if they're right or wrong. All Because every one of us, we've been taught, you've been taught raised the Baptist. I've been raised in the Church of God. And those certain scriptures they pull out, and when they tell you something, they'll quote that scripture, and boom, you know, you're a young Christian, as soon as they quote that scripture, yes, I believe it. And yet, then, I'm sitting in this class, and I'm getting different viewpoints, too. And, and somewhere along the way, I think both sides have kind of missed the mark song, because cause somewhere, God's got to show us what the truth really is. Oh, yeah, you made sense. And, and the, the sense that you made is very important. Most Christians are not teachable. They can't be taught anything because they got all the answers. Um, yeah, and usually you get yourself in a church or a tradition. You know, you, I mean, I was growing up. I thought the Baptists were the only one that's going to be in heaven. Seriously. Yeah, I grew up the same way. You know, anybody that's not a Baptist is not going to be in heaven. You know, those Lutherans, poor Lutherans. And then I ran into a Lutheran Christian, you know. And and the Charismatics, they're going to sail right on by heaven. They're not going to even land, you know. Um, and we get, yeah, we get, we get, we get focused in on our little understanding, our tight little understanding of Scripture, <coughs> And we need to be taught by the Holy Spirit who gives us an understanding. And we need to be open to being taught. And the problem with the Pharisees and the Jews here, they were not open to being taught. From their perspective, they had the answer. And if Christ did not fit their system, obviously he was of the devil. There was no other alternative in their mind. And Christ is challenging them here. Trying to challenge their perceptions. If you want to know the truth, if you really want to do the will of the Father, you really want to know the truth, he will reveal it. But do you really want to know it? 
Are you desperate enough? You have to want it. You want it. Forget what your mom and dad taught you if they taught you in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteous is in him. Christ is saying here, I am not coming down here giving you a system of belief to make me look good. It is not about me. It is about the one who sent me. It is his message. Now, I'll tell you what. You can spot a false teacher a million miles away if you just get a hold of that. I was going to say, I think that verse 18 should probably be a good memory verse for most of these guys. <laughs> Maybe you should study that one, you know? <laughs> you know, you get, you get these guys. I'll tell you, it doesn't take me five seconds to pick a false teacher out of TV. You look at Frederick K.C. Price strutting around the stage like he's God's gift to Christianity. Where's he come up with this stuff? It's his own doing. Benny Hinn. You know, as I read it, we're sitting here looking at what's happening in John in the book. If Christ would have wanted to have gotten glory for himself, he had every opportunity to do so. He did. Because he could have played to the masses in a heartbeat. Just just after he fed those five thousand, if he had just played to the masses, he could have he could have he could have done anything he wanted to as far as achieve anything earthly yeah. that he wanted to. They were trying to force him to make him king. You know, they were they were gonna put him in let's let's do it right now, let's not mess around. And yet that was not his goal. His goal was to do the will of the one who sent him. That's all that mattered to him. And his duty was to give the message that the one who sent him gave him to give. It wasn't his own ego. And, and that's the other thing. Christ's ego was not the issue. <coughs> and yet, I hate to say it, but you look at some of these guys on television and radio, and it's like if, if something happened to them, the whole program of God would come crashing down. So true of so many ministries. God does not need them. He doesn't need any of us. You think God needs Benny Hinn? Well, Benny Hinn, I mean, it's not a Christian, but some, you think God's program is going to stall if Benny gets kicked off the radio or television? Probably be a good thing for Christianity. <laughs> you know? Christ is seriously saying, I'm not here giving my own. I spin on things. This is not my doctrine. This is the doctrine of the one who sent me, which, by the way, was totally congruous with what? The scripture. The whole Old Testament. You want to test what I say? Go look at your own Old Testament. Go look at your own scripture that you say you believe. I'm not making this up. You can even look down the road when they finally go on the trial. They had to bring false yeah because there was not one thing they could put their finger on except for the fact he said i am and i'll tell you i'll tell you another way to pick out a false teacher when you point out his error from the scripture how does he respond if someone responds with anger and 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 don't question me and who dare you and yada yada that's a false teacher get out of there get out of there but if he looks at you and says, hey, let's let's look at this passage, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Let's see what the scripture says. 
If his, if his allegiance is to the word of God, he's going to welcome that. He's going to welcome that because his, he's going to be more concerned about being accurate and true to the word of God than he is about his own image or ego. Christ is saying, I didn't come down here to do my own will. I didn't come down here to give my own message and just make this stuff up. I came to do the will of him who sent me. And if you want to know if I was sent by him, do you want to believe him? Do you want to do his will? It talks about rebuking an elder in a sense of judging him. We are to point out sin. Need to point out sin? Yeah, go to him. Same thing with the elder. Try that today yeah. <laughs> We're not to judge, you know, and that's the other, that's the thing. It's, you know, because they like tossing out the road, well, judge not lest you be judged. You know, and they like throwing that little verse out. And what Christ is talking about there is not going to a brother in sin or pointing out doctrinal error. Rather, he's talking about um, passing judgment, sentence on someone. I don't know your heart, but I can see what you're doing. And if what you're doing is inconsistent with the word of God, I have a duty, I have a responsibility as your brother to come and point that out. I can't judge you. You're, 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 you're not accountable to me in the sense of judgment, but I am to point out your error. I'm not to be critical and pass, be judge, jury, and executioner. And that's what Christ is talking about in, in Matthew 7. I think too when you go to a brother you see a fault, you're doing a spirit of love. Well, that's what Galatians 6 1 says, go in the spirit of meekness. Yeah, you, you know, you're doing, you know, trying to help them live the, the, you know, according to the Holy Scripture. Yeah, that's you're all. Help them get, you know, right with God. You're not trying to, like we say, pass judgment on them. No. Take them out or bring them before the Lord. Here's this, verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law that none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now, he's going to bring back this concept here on the Sabbath. Moses gave you the law, but you don't keep it. Did the Jews keep the law? No. They reduced to the law the law to a series of external things. And they missed the whole meaning of the law. They missed the whole meaning. Uh, Christ tried to deal with this a little bit in Matthew, Remember? Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said by them of old time, um, you're not to commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look on a woman of lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, some people say, well, Christ is redefining the law. No, he wasn't redefining anything. He was saying, you know, God's original intent was this. You've reduced it to a series of external things. Uh, you say... Um, you know, thou shalt not kill. That's true. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've killed him. You say, uh, you know, uh, don't break your oaths. I say, if you, you don't need to swear by the gold of the temple or the gold on the dome. Your yea should be yea and your nay should be nay. You should be a person of integrity. Your word is your bond. And what is talking about character that's really at the heart of who you are. Yeah, and what Christ is 
beating on the Pharisees about is that you guys have so externalized and made all these lists and lists upon lists that you've missed the whole point of it. You've missed the whole point of the law. And you think because you've kept a bunch of external things, you love God. What's God after? Your obedience? After your hearts. Because then if you, if you get the heart right, the obedience is a moot point. The obedience follows. You know. Tablets of stone, it's written on your heart. So really, you look at it from one respect, they're dealing with the problem of sin at the symptom and not at the heart. That's right. And what they've done, and once you start dealing with that, you can make up lists and, and create sins where there are no sins. Yeah. And that's what Christ was doing here. Now, you know, legalistic churches are very good at that. Well, it's a sin to play cards. Where'd you get that? Yeah. Got a chapter verse on that? <laughs> where's, the, where's the chapter verse on that? You know? It's, it's, it's a sin to... To, to drink a you know a, a, a glass of beer. Where where'd you say that? Got any verse chapter on that? Sin to do this, sin to do that. Um, if you're not here every time the church doors are open, you're sinning. Well, where's it say that? Where, where's it say in the Bible I got to be there every single time the church doors are open? Does it? No. Sorry for a lot of the preachers, but no, it does not. What does it say? It says you need to be regularly attending church, but it doesn't give you a frequency. That's even more so as the days grow shorter. Yeah, it doesn't give you a frequency of, you know, you know, God's going to judge you because you missed church tonight. The, the the Jews had externalized it, and Christ is telling him, said, "God, Moses gave you the law, yet you guys are constantly breaking it." See, even the rabbis understood they can't keep the whole thing. So they had these all these different mechanisms whereby they could sort of keep the law, but really not keep the law. We're really good at that. You know, that's funny. Uh, my, one of my wife's friends uh, is a convert to Judaism. And it's funny, one of the big rock and roll bands was coming to Cleveland, and she really, really wanted to go. So she talked to her rabbi, and her rabbi basically told her, well... I, I can't officially sanction you going, but if you do go, you do X, Y, and Z, it'll cover it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's 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 the rabbinical way of living. Yeah. You know, and Christ is saying you guys have missed the whole point. Now, now, what was the big conflict over? What particular law really fried them when it came to Christ? Sabbath, Sabbath day. Sabbath. He's constantly fighting with them on that. And you see that here. The people answered and said, you have a demon. You're nuts. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses there gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now, 
he, he, he's hitting the Sabbath thing here. They're still mad because of the guy he healed on Sabbath told him to walk, take up his bed and walk. Christ is saying, you know, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that Moses gave it because it was from the fathers. Now, if you look at circumcision, circumcision preceded Moses. Right. Where did circumcision go back to? Abraham. So. The Mosaic law, although circumcision was part of the old covenant, it was not part of the Mosaic law. It had preceded it by 400 years. All right. And Christ is saying here, you circumcise babies on the Sabbath day. So they were, the child was born and had to be brought in town. The child was born on the Sabbath. It had to be circumcised eight days later on the Sabbath. Okay. And they did that. But if they had to walk more than a day's journey, they got a they got a special dispensation for doing that. Dispensation. Said so you circumcise your babies on the Sabbath, and I'm not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. What's he telling them? You've missed the whole point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not meant to be a burden. It was given as sort of a gift by God to give you a day to rest and to think on spiritual things and to not have to be gainfully employed. It was a day to focus on God. And they had turned it into this laborious, horrid thing that was a burden they said you couldn't only walk so far on a Sabbath. You could only eat so much on a Sabbath. You weren't allowed to cook food on a Sabbath. You weren't allowed to write a letter on a Sabbath. You weren't. By the time you were done, there were so many rules around the Sabbath that it had become an onerous and cumbersome thing. And Christ is saying you've missed the whole point of the Sabbath. It was never intended to be that. You break the law in spirit. So it was never intended to be that. If a man receives circumcision on a Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on a Sabbath? Where in the Bible, where in the, where in the Old Testament does it say you're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath? And Christ said if your animal falls in the pit on the Sabbath, you get him out, right? But I'm not allowed to heal a man on a Sabbath? Don't laugh because we have the double standards ourselves. But you know, today we look at that sin is sin seven days a week, 365 days across every culture, straight from the Bible. It says, Thou shalt not, that's sin. You know, but we create our own. Look at this loophole they're showing here as he's dealing with the Sabbath. We have those same situations. If you start looking at it, there's going to be the same discrepancies in what we call sin today if it's not sin. We are just as hypocritical in many ways as the Pharisees were. Sure. They teach if a woman cuts her hair, it's sin. Well, there's some that do. Yeah, there's tens of thousands of bald-headed women in America. They I teach if a, if a woman wears uh, anything other than a skirt, she's sinning before God. Yeah. Where do you get that? Where do you make that up? 
We make up sins. Sure we do. You know, and you get these people, pastors getting the pulpit and froth at the mouth and talk about the sins of this and the sins of that, but they're doing the same thing. <coughs> it's external. I've heard everybody. Make I was told, yeah, I was, yeah. You're not allowed to wear makeup. You're not allowed to wear, there's, there's one woman that, you know, she was forced to take her wedding ring off because someone said you're not allowed to wear gold or jewelry from First Peter 3. Well, any moron that looks at First Peter 3 and understands what it's saying, using John's terminology, anybody with common sense, Peter's not telling them not to put their hair up and not to wear gold. He's telling them, don't let that be your only adorning. That's the point, right? And by the way, if you read that, you want to be... Next time a some preacher pulls that one out about not, we're not wearing a ring, say, well, if you're going to be exegetically correct, the woman has to take all of her clothes off as well. Right? Don't let me the adorning of the playing of the hair or the wearing of gold or the putting on of a apparel. So if she's supposed to take her ring off, she's got to go naked too. Now that'll, that'll get them going there, right? No, I'm just saying you want to be, you want to be logically consistent, right? The Pharisees were very good then. Christ is, Christ is hitting them here at the very point of them after him. And now this is not the only healing he did on the Sabbath, is it? He healed the guy at, at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. He healed the, the what is it, the, the paralytic, the withered hand on the Sabbath. I mean, I think he took great joy in just waiting for the Sabbath to roll along to do a couple of healings. To have them confront their hypocrisy. <laughs> Nowhere in the scripture does it say you're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. Now, what the rabbis did is they said, well, if you fell down and broke your leg on the Sabbath, all right, the only thing that could happen on the Sabbath is you could be, you could do just enough to make yourself comfortable, but you could not set the bone because that would be doing work. You have to wait till the Sunday to do that. So if you fall down in the middle of the street and break your leg, you're going to have to just lay there until... Sundown. Now, if your ox falls in the pit, you can get that ox out, but you can't. That's the point. How could they believe that God meant that? That's the part that, that's so good. I mean, we're guilty in any different areas, I know. But I mean, that kind of thing, I look at it and say, how can you believe that God once expected that of you? It's called indoctrination. Yeah, it's a, we have. You know, I, I really believe this. I believe in some ways you could almost term that kind of view of God idolaters. Because you're worshiping a God that is not the God of the Scripture. You're creating a God that is not the God of the Scripture. You can, idolatry, you can worship the right God the wrong way and that's idolatry, right? You can also distort your image of God. And I think in some of these churches that are hyper-legalistic, they have a very distorted view of who God is. He's up there with a big score pad, keeping track of all your little, whatever it is you do. And writing down these little check marks. Don't you think, too, we're vulnerable? Because we get right with God, we get saved. And wherever we're at, when that happens, whatever we're fed from that particular church, 
then, you know, we, we believe it all. That's what you got to You know, and every, it's, it's sort of like an old baby. Whatever milk the mother gives it, that baby drinks it. And that's what makes it grow. I'm not saying all good, but, but the reality is that that's what happens to all of us. You grew up in the Baptist church, and whatever you were taught after you were saved, you, I'm sure you embraced it. Man. Mm -hmm. It took a long time. The same way, my mom and dad, we, we talked many times as we look back, and we, we remember the things that we used to do when I, I was just a child, and the preacher would preach against something. My parents would come home and take it out of the house immediately. And, you know, they had a sincere desire to serve God and, you know, draw closer to Him. Whatever the preacher said, they did. Why don't you go check? You go I got a phone call here. It might be him. Okay. Yeah, go check. It's like, you know, we look back, you know, we've grown a lot since those days. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot more knowledge than we had then, especially my parents. And, and yet, my dad looks back and says the church grew like crazy back in yeah. those days in comparison to today. Even mm -hmm. when it was so hard. Yeah. Christ here is saying... They like rules. In verse 24, he says, do not, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Get your judgment right. Don't judge according to the externals. Don't focus on the externals. That's all the Pharisees did. They focused on the external. If I was a Pharisee, I'd want to say, what, what miracle could cause this man who was lame all these years to walk? Bag the idea that was done on a Sabbath. I'd be more interested in what's going on here. But because Christ did not fit their little rules. See, see again, he did not go to their seminaries. He was not indoctrinated in their way of looking at things. And because of that, they, he was not part of them. And I'm thinking also that they were so separated from their history and the prophets and the, and the gifts and, and the workings of the Holy Spirit and the prophets to perform miraculous things in the past. And I mean, there had been what, over 400 years Nothing. of silence. So but 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 but, um, but, under, but understand this because they were not because their hearts were darkened and that goes by default right unless God opens your heart you're darkened their hearts were darkened therefore they could not see Christ for who he was and what and they had to come up with an explanation of Christ that fit their concept that they were right and he wasn't like them because they were right, because they considered themselves to be right. And they didn't even consider the remote possibility that they could possibly be wrong. Christ had to be of the devil because that was the only explanation in their little pea-brained existence that made sense. And they had to have believed that the Messiah was going to rise out of their system. Mm-hmm. They felt when the Messiah came, the first thing he would do is go to all the Pharisees and pat them on the back and congratulate them for being so godly. By the way, that, idea, that, that makes God barf. Makes him sick to his stomach. When you try to walk into God's presence and somehow strut around that you're, so, you're doing God a favor by being a Christian or somehow God owes you because of your actions, and you, you, you're, you're, you've got a problem right there. God doesn't owe you anything. Christ used the 
example, remember the Pharisee and the, or the tax collector and the Pharisee? He didn't even look up towards heaven. God be merciful to me. And here's the Pharisee that comes in and he, he, he gives God a, a resume of all the things he's done. Now, in his mind, God owed him forgiveness. Publican said, God doesn't owe me anything. Just be merciful to me. Please, God. God doesn't owe us anything. And the Pharisees could not see this. And they, they, they hated Christ because he messed up their nice, neat little system because he did not fit their concept of what the Messiah should be. He healed on the Sabbath of all horrors. He healed on the Sabbath. He just don't do that. You don't heal on the Sabbath. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? Wait a minute. They're trying to kill him and he's here boldly speaking. Aren't they going to do something about it? Or maybe they've changed their minds about who he is. However, we know where this man is from, but where the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now, now they're really getting all balled up. Because what did they see Christ as? Hey, you know, this guy's from Galilee. Now, if they'd done any research, what would they have found out? Christ was born in Bethlehem, but see, they never bothered to find that out. Right? Look, there's no prophet that arises out of Galilee. It's Bethlehem Ephrata. That's where the Messiah comes from. Well, if they would have just done a little bit of biological or you know biographical research, they would have found out where he came from. But no, since Christ had lived in Galilee for so long, they just assumed he was from Galilee. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I'm from him, and he sent me. You don't know the one who sent me, therefore you don't know me. You don't know me. I mean, he, he, he hit him head on. And therefore they sought that they take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Some believed. They saw the signs that he did. Some believed it. But the Jews did not believe because Christ did not fit their mold of what he was supposed to be. Thank you for listening to today's study in the Gospel of John. Part 2 of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.